Listening to the Order 66 podcast, brought to you by Gamer Nation Studios, D20 Radio, and the generous donations of Jared Williams, Kevin Malone, Donald Weller, Sean Kumar, Darren Hampton, Andy Bethel, B. Witzel, and Balaam's Blasters. What is up, Gamer Nation? GM Chris here, and for those tuning in for the very first time, welcome to the original podcast entirely devoted to Star Wars role-playing, The Order 66 Podcast, and I'm one of your co-hosts. I am joined tonight by uh, two additional co-hosts. Are they man? Are they machine? Are they human meat popsicles? I It depends, I guess, on... Well, Phil probably is. I, I, I don't know how cool it is. Still there, Phil, but... Surprisingly, not too bad. It actually got up into the high forties today. Wow, mm. that's that's impressive. That's very impressive for New England. That's not that's not bad. That's not bad at all. And Dave, I know you're always a meat popsicle. Ladies and gentlemen, this is GM Dave, who has been certified human by the Turing test. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well done. Very well done. Oh, well, guys, we're glad to be joining you. It's been uh, far too many weeks since our last episode. Uh, Life has been absolutely insane for all of us, but we're here and we have a crunchy and meaty episode that I'm very excited to get into, um, along with some really cool announcements uh, to start the show off with. You guys want to get into it? Absolutely. I think that would be yes. Hello there. What have we here? Good news. All right, what do we got? Yo, dude, how about the feature podcast this week? It is one of these shows that we've got to take some time out to pimp. And this would be the Amazing Live Play podcast that is on our network. Dice for Brains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this crew does some amazing FFG Star Wars live play and just finished season six. Yes, that's six of Incredible Adventures recently. The crew dropped a new special post-season six episode that really is devoted to listener Q&A about their campaign. The action, choices, characters. It's a really good listen. Give some mental insight as to how some great role players make even better decisions. So you know what? Go check it out. And while you're there... You'll find that and many more great podcasts over at thedubsd20radio.com. Moving on to Fantasy Flight Games news. We were blessed this week with the announcement of Knights of Fate, the 
warrior career book from uh, the Force and Destiny line. And this is the last career book to be produced, presumably. <laughs> um, the article ha- the article was not very informative, not much specific data. They actually, actually, the first time I think I've ever seen them talk about the motivations that are being included in the new book. They did, of course, mention three new species, but they also mentioned the Vapod specialization. Vapod being the kind of not quite as evil version of form, lightsaber form seven. So I'm eagerly looking forward to that book. Um, so yeah, that book is supposed to be out sometime quarter two, assuming that their ships and shipments are actually on some reasonable schedule. Not like Pokemon. No, 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 no. Or like any book they produced last year, with the exception of Genesis, which was printed in the United States. <laughs> uh, moving on. Dawn of Rebellion has now been listed as shipping and should be hitting the store sometime next week. <gasps> I am eagerly looking forward to this book. Oh, my. Oh. It, will, it, it shall be on my game shop shelf tomorrow. Rock. Are you serious? It'll be in your store tom- at your store tomorrow? It's supposed to be. I got my tracking info yesterday. Dude, nice. if you can hold me a copy, I'll be by Saturday. I'll pick it up. <laughs> All right, I'll text you if I actually get it. Okay, are you working Saturday? Uh, yes. Fantastic. It's awesome having a co-host who owns a game store now. (laughs) (laughs) Good times, good times. It's good times, bro. It's good times. (laughs) But you guys can find details about Knights of Fate and anything else concerning the Star Wars uh, role-playing game books at fantasyflightgames.com. I'm really excited for Vapa. That's the Mace Windu was a big practitioner of that, right? He was the he was pretty much was the practitioner yeah. uh, practitioner of that. Yeah, that was like the the this should be dark side, but it's kind of not. <laughs> yeah, and I'm I'm imagining you know every book they seem to have one for uh, one specialization that has that dark side talent that you get a, a conflict point every session just for knowing it. Yeah, I'm fairly certain that this is this book's dark side spec. The BMF spec, in other words. Oh, totally. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm sure that's one of the bottom tier talents is, you know, b- bad motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Badass that is most definitely a 25 XP uh, XP talent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Well, you guys can check that article out, of course, as Phil said. And while you're perusing the internet, be sure to make to, to head over to the only gaming blog whose deep web houses 42 petabytes of Finn and Poe fan fiction. Not really. Uh, but it does house some amazing articles and content from some of the best gaming minds out there. Some highlights from this past week. Um, our very own editor-in-chief, Wayne Basta, finished out his series of X-Wing upgrade guides uh, with a deep dive into modifications, finally, for your ships. Uh, ranked lists, deep details on each modification and how it can be used. A stupendous resource, a phenomenally long article uh, for any X-Wing player. Nice work, Wayne. Um, and the awesome Chris Hunt brings us more stats for FFG Star Wars with the RZ-2 A-Wing, which was seen in Episode 8 and is the successor to the A-Wing we all know so well. Um, not only is this new ship fully statted out by Chris, but he also treats us to a new rule and starship tactic he's introduced. Hyperspace Extraction Points. 
Um, awesome stuff that you guys can bring into your games right now. Thank you, Chris. Good stuff. You guys can find all of this and more daily over at d20radio.com, where the new content comes every single day. And while you're over there, you'll see a couple buttons on the right-hand side of the page. The first will take you to our forum community, uh, which is uh, pumping and jumping. And the other will take you to our Patreon, or you can just head to patreon.com slash d20radio. If you guys are fans of what we do, you're a fan of the blog, you want to help us, support us, keep the servers going, and keep our authors paid for the work they contribute, a couple dollars a month is all we ask. Thank you. So you think that hyperspace extraction is really how to extract the guts of a ship while going to hyperspace right in front of it? I think it's maybe I think Han Solo invented it. It's how to extract the guts of a Rathtar while going to hyperspace. Ah. Ah, yes, okay. Uh, well, you guys uh, may have noticed that it's coming up on springtime, and if that is the case, then that means Gamer Nation Con is on the horizon, and indeed... Gamer Nation Con number five looms. Two months. Two months. Actually, in two months, it will have already gone, but still. April 5th through the 8th, 2018 in Plano, Texas. Plano, Texas. The event submission is open, and uh, you know you can find that a couple of different ways. You can actually go to GamerNationCon.com, and there's a link there. And you can also go to our old Kickstarter if you want to go to kickstarter.com and search for Gamer Nation Con. Or, in the best way, is to simply go to tabletop.events and find Gamer Nation Con, and then, bam, you can submit. I will admit I am behind on uh, event approvals, so don't, you know, don't be worried if I haven't approved your event just yet. Uh, we also have to, before we approve everything, we have to make sure that I have all the table numbers correct. So, yeah, but that'll be done by March when we actually open signups. So, no oh, yes. problem. It will be done. It will be done. You guys have approximately one month to get events submitted. Um, unlike some other conventions, we prefer to open up our event uh, uh, our, our event registration shortly before the con so you guys can actually plan and know what's going on. Um, current, event, uh, reg- current event registration for you to attend events will happen on or about March 15th. Um, we're finalizing a couple details on dates based on outstanding gamer cred. Um, those who have a great deal of gamer cred um, will be allowed to register 48 hours early for events. Um, we are still tallying thresholds from last year to kind of see what the top 10% cutoff is going to be, and that's who's going to be in it. Uh, but we'll have all the updates available at GamerNationCon.com. And, of course, be sure to follow GamerNationCon on Facebook, where we will make all these glorious and wonderful and lovely announcements. Dude. And speaking of lovely announcements... Mm-hmm. Stay in the know by following D20 Radio on the Facebooks for news and podcast info on a daily basis. You can also follow the GMs on Twitter, at D20 Radio. We post and tweet show information and announcements regularly. Oh, dude. Before we leave announcements, speaking of Gamer Nation Con, so, mm. um, like, <sighs> I, this weekend, those people who have backed for our backer zone for the Gamer Nation Con 5 will have access mm. to something new. And uh, it's in its final editing passes right now, and it will be available, if not tomorrow, then Saturday. Um, and Phil, I know you've seen it, and Dave, you've seen snippets, I guess, on Facebook along with a few other people, but uh, have you seen my Harry Potter uh, Genesis yeah. theme? Yeah. <laughs> 57 pages, yo. Jesus. 
Well done. Everything from eight brand new archetypes to uh, equipment, wands, magic rules, skills, new talents, brooms and other vehicles, and and then a bevy of threats and adversaries. It's um, it's wonderful, and I cannot wait to run the living heck out of it um, at Gamer Nation Con 5. But Dave, and I'd like to take this opportunity on the podcast to kind of answer this question. Dave, we've had several um, people through Facebook who missed out on the Kickstarter and didn't get the chance to pledge at the very basic level, which doesn't get you con attendance, but gets you access to this year's backer zone. And they want that and other content. There, There is, correct me if I'm wrong, a way for them to pledge for backer zone content after the Kickstarter's over, correct? Yeah, there's a link on the Kickstarter page, actually, and a button that we enabled. If you go there, it's it's actually says join us, but... Yeah, you can still do that and then just do uh, – I forgot what the level was. I think now. it's $25, 20 or 25 Yeah, and if that doesn't work for you, then you know what? We'll figure out a way that will, but you can always just like, I don't know, PayPal us or something. But yeah, we'll figure it out. The, you, but there, I, don't, I know that there is a button there that takes, it, that takes you to our, uh, our uh, <clears throat> shopping cart. Excellent. And for those who are not wanting to contribute or cannot, fret not, um, as of as all our backers own content is, we will make it available uh, exclusively for backers um, until next year, at which point after the next Kickstarter, at which point it will be made available to the public. So if you're willing to wait many, 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 many months, uh, you will get access to this custom content. Um, <clears throat> but I've, uh, yeah, seriously, it's great. I can't wait. I'm very excited. Um, between that and Phil's Fallout mod and... Uh, Phil, are you are you going to have your next theme ready by the con? I know life has gotten crazy for you. Uh, yes, yes, I will. Will you? I, well, okay. In, the game will be ready. Ah. It's occurring to me that trying to make the entire theme ready involves me actually writing out, what, 70 or 80 power sets? However yeah. many power sets there were in City of Heroes when it launched. Oh. Yeah. Ow. So so yeah, I, I guess you. I guess you've you've told us yes. Your theme is going to be City of Heroes. That's right. <laughs> and I've also started working on my next theme. I don't know if it'll be ready in time for the con, but I, I after some strong feedback from uh, the D twenty Radio community on Facebook, um, I've already started, and it will be Assassin's Creed. Nice. So um, I'm playing with a few options, uh, but basically I'm going to have a split character sheet. So the idea is that. You will have a character who has some skills and abilities, but uh, when you cast yourself through genetic memory into the past, you will have different skills and abilities, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's also a great way to take advantage of uh, modification of the fear and sanity rules uh, to uh, match the the bleeding effect of using the animus. Um, You know, the more you use it, the more checks you got to make and the crazier you get. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. Sweet. Yes, yes. All right, guys. Well, it's time, I think, that we return to another episode of Gaming Tidbits with GM Hooley. That dude, he, he's, running, he's running his own show on the network now, the Dice Pool, and he still finds time to produce this segment, which is pretty freaking amazing. Mm-hmm. Um. 
In this segment, uh, guys, he, he he delves into a specific topic of the FFG Star Wars system. He brings together scattered rules, dev rulings, just summarizing all major points and answered questions. Everything you need to know about that tidbit of the rules, whatever it is, to run it successfully in your games in a very encapsulated manner. And he does it in a very entertaining way. And in tonight's gaming tidbit, Huli continues after his escape from Soleil, but finds himself in some hot water as he imparts to us the basics of social encounters. Let's listen. Hello there, I am M8AU Human Cyborg Relations. Welcome to Gaming Tidbits with GM Hooley, a segment where we will discuss specific rules within the Star Wars role-playing game. You are looking for GM Hooley, are you not? Very well, sir. No, British beast. Well, he won't be very far away. We have all been captured by Horak the Hutt after all. Oh, there he is. Oh dear. Now, come on, Horak. There's clearly been a misunderstanding. The statue belongs in a museum. I just acquired it for them. It wasn't yours to have in the first place now, was it? Well, how was I supposed to know it originally belonged to your great-grandmother? Who did she get it from? Do you mean that's none of my business? That thing's a relic. Hang on. Wait. That's not what I meant. I didn't say your grandmother was a relic. Come on. Remember that job I did for you back on Haynet? We go way back, you and me. There's no need for that. Hey, watch it. Yeah, thanks for the hospitality, pal. Sir, our friend has come back to join us. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, it's so great. He'll even get to see us eaten by Horax Ackley. Won't that be exciting? Probably just before he gets to be dessert. Sir, what should I do in the meantime? You know the plan, M8. Directive Besh 8454. Oh, goodness, but... Just get it done. I don't want to be in here forever. Oh, dear. It's all up to you, buddy. Very well, sir. Well, my friend, looks like we're stuck in here until M8 can get us out. What's that? What happened out there? Well, let's just say my social combat prowess is not what it used to be. Not against a hut, anyway. We'll be here for a while, so let's talk about social combat. As I promised, in the game there are five social skills, namely charm, coercion, deception, leadership, and negotiation. Each of those skills covers a different aspect of social graces. Charm is a warm smile and a silver tongue. You know, like me. An individual with this knack can give just the right compliment to his target, often by deciphering the subject's social and cultural backgrounds to get what they want. Charm is opposed by cool, which unfortunately Horak has a lot of. Coercion is when a character attempts to instill obedience in a target using threats or acts of physical violence, or perhaps intimidation. Coercion is opposed by discipline. Deception, however, is used when a falsehood plays the central role in a persuasive effort to get what a character wants. 
Deception is opposed by discipline, but can also be opposed by vigilance. Leadership is a combination of making smart decisions, being firm and decisive when doing so, and instilling a sense of loyalty and respect in one's subordinates, or in some cases, people who would otherwise not want to be working for that particular character. Leadership is opposed by discipline. Negotiation is probably the most useful skill in social combat. Well, next to coercion, of course. But with its usefulness covering many interactions, including the purchase of goods, through to dealing with bureaucrats, politicians, and of course the law. Negotiation is opposed by either cool or negotiation. Any of these skills can be used in social encounters, or as they're sometimes called, social combat. A social encounter can occur at any time during a game and can provide a much needed reprieve to combat weary characters, can spice up the session, and can allow the more socially skilled characters to step into the spotlight. Social encounters are not covered in the rules other than those provided in the Age of Rebellion sourcebook for diplomats, desperate allies, but are now present in the Genesis role-playing game, which uses the same narrative dice system as the Star Wars role-playing game. Social encounters can be run narratively or in a structured format like personal combat. In either case, a social encounter should occur within a scene or, as the name suggests, an encounter. This is to consider talents and abilities that can only be used once per encounter. It's also useful to do it this way to track strain and strain recovery, since strain is what will be used mostly in these encounters instead of wounds. If you are considering using these rules when your players are about to buy a new speeder, yeah, you're probably overcomplicating things. These rules should only be considered at pivotal moments during an adventure or campaign, such as when negotiating a trade deal with a hut, as I just tried to do, brokering a peace deal between two warring factions, or when engaged in a courtroom drama, which I hope I'm never near. A social encounter should be just as important as any other combat encounter in a game. Unlike personal combat, characters in social encounters suffer strain instead of wounds during the conflict. Well, that is unless, of course, you have a situation go Neopold-shaped, like what happened out there with Horak and guns start getting pulled. But I digress. Ha! How about some room service then? Yeah, that's not going to happen, I guess. Now, where was I? Oh, that's right. Strain. Characters suffer strain during social encounters by using talents of their own through the application of penalties imposed by the accumulation of threat or when targeted by an NPC using talents such as scathing tirade. But passing out from strain in this way may seem ridiculous in the context of a social encounter. As the section in Desperate Allies suggests, the GM should consider alternative consequences for strain accrual, such as suffering social ramifications, losing one's cool with an emotional outburst, or becoming totally disillusioned or despondent. In any case, the character should become unable to help resolve the situation any further, such as providing aid in the form of boost dice to other characters, or even skilled assistance. What was that? How does someone cause strain? That's a good question. A character has several options to cause strain. They can use talents designed for this effect, but skill-wise, coercion is the most commonly used. Any of the other four can be used, though. However, the check must be appropriate for the circumstance and should be described by the player. The Genesis role-playing game provides an interesting option here that if a social skill is used to cause strain, a character may cause one point of strain damage 
plus one for every additional success in that skill check rolled. The Star Wars role-playing game does save one strain for every two successes under the coercion skill description, but it doesn't provide a baseline for the damage like Genesis does. So I would recommend taking a look at Genesis and looking at those options. Sir, everything is in place. M8, that's fantastic, but just wait a tick. I forgot to mention the difficulties of these checks are opposed. In other words, the difficulty of the check is dependent on the target's correlating skill. But GMs should not be afraid to add setback dice or even adding any additional difficulty level if the command, con, order or persuasive action is against the target's own motivations. Are you ready now, sir? Yep, mate. Good to go. Oh, I can't bear to watch. Um... Now, listen, my friend, stick close to us. Things are going to get a little rough, okay? Light it up, eh, mate? Thank you, gentle beings, for listening to Gaming Tidbits with Tim Hooley. We hope that you've enjoyed your stay. Please come again soon, won't you? If you have a question you would like answered by GM Hurley, please contact us via the most archaic of technologies email at gmhurley at d20radio.com. Goodbye. Awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. So are you guys ready to get into the meat of tonight's particular show? Om nom 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 nom. Sure, why not? That was the first om nom nom I've heard from you. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> now that you can eat again. Like, real, Seriously. real food. <laughs> Seriously. Okay, I have to ask, what is the one thing that you find yourself craving heavily now that you're, you know, cancer-free and able to eat? Um, that's actually a real good question. Um, honestly, probably, probably a very nice, very good steak. Oh. You know, with, with just that right amount of glaze on it and, and, and yeah, just, yeah, glorious, glorious. Wow. You're making me hungry. I do what I can. It is time for the meat of the show. Well, let's do it. All right, gents, do we have any tentative titles for tonight's titular topic? I believe that would be Masterful Module Manipulation or How to Avoid Throwing the Damn Pre-Made Adventure Over Your Shoulder. (laughs) It's very good. Tonight's Meet of the Show request came in from listener Lance, um, who called in over the holidays with quite the tough conundrum, and we're going to play it for you right now. Hello, oh, this is Lance. Um, not to be confused with GM Lance, but uh, I had a question about uh, running Star Wars campaigns, like running them with ready-made campaigns. Um, I, I've noticed that it is it seems to be easier to run a campaign when you have actually thought of the details and you have figured out, you know, how things work, and but it seems, I don't know, for me it seems a little bit harder to grasp someone else's concepts of a world of, you know, that, that has been put into a ready-made campaign and then convey those things to the players in a proper manner because sometimes you might forget 
because there's so many characters and so many different types of attitudes and you've got to keep them all tracked up in your head and you know it's it just becomes it seems like more of a headache but i was one i don't know if it's worthy of a new show topic but or just a question but um what would you what advice would you give players that want to create or, or run a ready-made campaign with their players and advice for basically just keeping it all straight and if things go off the rails with the ready-made like how to like make sure you still keep in the spirit of the narrative dice system even though that you, know, you got to keep all this together i don't know if that makes sense but uh uh, anyway, um, and I never listen to our 66 podcast because I'm too busy converting Pathfinder to Genesis system. And uh, thank you. Hmm. Hmm. What? Why would you convert Pathfinder to Genesis? Pathfinder stands just fine on its own. Unless you don't like the rules. <laughs> I guess. There you go. <laughs> well, well, there you go. Lance, first of all, know that your pain is a common one. Um, there are some absolutely amazing pre-made adventures uh, that are out there, many of them produced and sold by FFG. Now, this classic RPG problem, though, is not limited or unique to Star Wars or, or far from the FFG system either. Game masters have experienced the pain of complex pre-written adventures um, and those same adventures going off the rails uh, since pre-written adventures were first offered. <laughs> Um, for any system in any game. Um, however, I will admit that in this system, due to its amazing feature of the narrative dice, I have found personally that it is much easier for adventures to go off the rails than in other systems. Thank you, Triumphs. Um, this means that many of the learned behaviors that, that good DMs and GMs have mastered over the years just really don't apply as easily. So what can you do? Is there a way to player-proof a pre-written adventure? Is there a way to help you, the GM, manage the module, keep things straight, deal with module derailment? Yes, Lance, there is a Santa Claus. And we are going to help you and other GMs out there find him tonight with our own hard-learned tips and recommendations. So buckle up, Gamer Nation, as we prepare for a pre-made problems and advise with awesome adventure additions tonight on your Order 66 podcast. Saul. Saul. Gentlemans. Yeah. Can we understand the problem? I can do. We, can we uh, set the stage with a quick reminder of just what the problem is that we're talking about here? And uh, let's keep in mind that pre-written adventures, campaigns, modules exist to make the GM's job easier, not harder. Yes. Yes, indeed. So, uh, why? Why pregens? Well, okay. So, they're there for when you don't have time to plan a complex and character-filled world with plot threads and threats and amazing action sequences. They are there to help you benefit from the crafty brains of some of the most amazing game and adventure writers in the business. I'd like you to uh, point to uh, Ice Station Zulu as an example of that. <laughs> <laughs> They're there for you to quickly get excitement and fun on the table with very little prep. Oh, and by the way, I've gotten messages that Ice Station Zulu is cursed, by the way. 
It is. I, I've uh, heard. It is. Apparently, cursed. apparently, somebody had twelve despairs come up. So yeah, it's cursed. Uh, the paradox is that, as Lance points out, the very act of writing an adventure makes you intimately familiar with it in a way that nothing else can. You can easily roll with punches and changes, and that's not necessarily so for a pre-written adventure that you're just diving into. Ah, rule number one. What was designed to make your life easier reduces your intimate knowledge and investment in the story simply because you didn't go through the action of writing it? Yes. NPCs get mixed up in your head. Yes. Plot points and what happens next need to be constantly referenced. Yes. Yes. So, okay. We can deal with that, though. Here we go. We absolutely can. And our goal tonight with this episode is that we're going to go over some key things that any GM can with a pre-written adventure before play starts to make the adventure run smoother and stay on point. This is the Order 66 podcast method for running pre-generated adventures smoothly and keeping them on point. Now, ironically, this will require work on your part, which is funny since pre-written adventures are intended to require no prep time. But the truth of the matter is that for this system, you will benefit vastly from doing a wee bit of pre-work when you plan to throw down a pre-written adventure. The good news is, is that it should take you only an hour or two on your part instead of days or weeks of planning and prepping and writing. Now, our method consists of three tools that you can prepare to properly run a pre-written adventure and be ready to roll with the punches your party will throw. Specifically, we're talking about these three things. Creating a beat map, creating an NPC index, and creating a threat index. Now, this is a podcast. So we're going to do our best to verbally describe things that are also easily, perhaps more easily, explained in a visual nature. Having said that, we're not going to leave you in the lurch. As we go through this episode, we encourage you to look at some examples which we have provided. If you head to d20radio.com slash forums on the Order 66 podcast boards, you will find a thread for this episode. That's episode 111. In that thread are hyperlinks to honest-to-goodness real examples of each of these three tools for one of the pre-generated adventures available to all D20 Radio listeners in our backer zone. Act 1 of The Enemy of My Enemy, written by GM Chris. You can also head to the Order 66 podcast Facebook page, where you'll find the announcement post of this very episode, which will also have these hyperlinks. This way you can see just what we're talking about as we walk through it. All right, so, Chris, let's get into our first method. Yes, the first of the three tools you bring up, the beat map. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Not that kind of beat, but kind of that kind of beat. Um, uh, (laughs) Definitely not that kind of beat. (laughs) Because the thing is, uh, a story is like a piece of music. It's got a beat to it. It's got a rhythm, and that's kind of where this term comes from. This first tool of the beat map is perhaps the most important thing you can do to run a pre-written module successfully. What is a beat map? Every story, every adventure uh, has story beats. These are the steps that happen sequentially or concurrently to lead ultimately to the story's or adventure's conclusion. For pre-written adventures, these are typically encounters, okay, or scenes that happen. The beat map is you taking the time 
on a separate sheet of paper or a Word document or a Visio diagram or whatever to diagram out how the story beats of this particular adventure occur. Do you guys remember in school how they made you take notes on everything? Mm. <laughs> Pro tip. Here's a human cognition fact. When you undertake the action of physically writing something down for yourself, instead of just reading it, your brain is more likely to remember it. And even if you don't remember it, you have notes to reference, which is why teachers make you take notes. Same is true for a beat map. Reading an adventure is not enough. You must write. You must write. So, right. what are the steps to creating a beat map? Step one, and what I meant to say earlier, rule one, rule number one, read the damn adventure. <laughs> All right. You know what? Read it. Yes. Read it. Don't pull it out the day of and say, all right, I'm going to get this one done. Yeah. And then what happens is you wind up winging it and then everything becomes about drink vouchers. Yeah. That's kind of an inside joke. But anyway. All right, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Take time. Sit down. Read it cover to cover. Perhaps as you read, I don't know, maybe make a few notes of story beats. I'm, I'm just saying, you know. Make sure, first and foremost, you understand how the adventure flows from start to finish. High points, low points, all that jazz. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to step two. Write out the story beats. One preferred method is to use sticky notes. Now, if you're doing this digitally, create a text box in Word or PowerPoint or Visio or whatever. Have one note or box for every major story beat. This is every scene or encounter the PCs will have in the story. Give each beat a name, maybe the one found in the adventure or name of your device that will help you remember what the beat is about. Describe what happens in this beat succinctly. Mm -hmm. And step three, map those beats. Um, take those sticky notes or whatever they are and put them on a sheet of paper or add your text boxes to a large digital page. One beat will be your starting beat. It's the first scene of the adventure. From there, draw arrows from beat to beat to beat that creates a flow diagram of the adventure. It lets you know what scenes or encounters lead to which scenes. And yes, scenes can, of course, happen concurrently in the flow. The goal here is to burn into you, the GM's brain, what the flow of the adventure is and give you a pretty handy reference for what needs to happen next. Why is this important? Because things are going to go off the rails in this system. And no matter where your players go and no matter what harebrained idea they pull out, you can constantly reference back to the beat map to say, okay, where are they in the overall pre-generated story? Where do I need to guide them next? Okay. Be sure to note if beats are optional or mandatory. Um, there's a lot, in, especially in pre-written modules, there's a lot of optional stuff or things that can be skipped over entirely by PCs. Um, but, you know, you note if they are mandatory as well. You know, for example, can they progress to fighting the gang members at their hideout before they've uncovered the clues that the gang stole the shipment? All right. If they go off the rails while you're wanting them to uncover clues, you want to remember, OK, OK, they have to find those clues before I can move on to this next part. Not including your module reading, this should take. 10 to 15 minutes tops for you to develop a beat map just period and and again the beat map is there to to really make sure that you are intimately familiar with how the adventure progresses and to give yourself basically a flow diagram for the adventure so you can always refer back to it 
when you get stuck, when things go off the rails. All right, so that is tool one of the Order 66 podcast method, the beat map. What is tool two? Tool two of the aforementioned Order 66 podcast method is called the NPC Index. Okay, so a lot of published modules, but of course not all of them, do this for you already. This usually includes a page near the start or at the end that highlights all the major NPCs that are going to be found in this particular module. But that's basically what this is with a few more steps. The goal here is a lot like story beats to have a comprehensive mental and physical catalog of uh, all the primary NPC characters that are going to be in this adventure. Because if the PCs go off the rails and get to a story beat earlier than expected, you don't have to shuffle through a bunch of pages or go find something or reread it or try and remember where it was. You know what NPCs are going to be available. If your PCs go off the rails and bring back an NPC very common for a merchant or, or info resource, for example, two sessions after they first encountered him and you never expected him to reach out to that NPC again, well, it's very easy for you to bring them back into play with the same attitude and characteristics that they remember. Now, one of the awesome things about this is that you want to create cards that are either physical or digital for each important NPC that holds uh, some key things. First, we're going to talk about character details, right? This would be the name, affiliation, role-playing attributes of that particular character. Is there a picture? Add it. Does the NPC have an accent, a general attitude or disposition? Note that as well. What's the role in the adventure? Is the NPC an antagonist, an ally, a merchant? Maybe infotent? How can... The PCs interact with this NPC meaningfully. I don't know. I have no idea. But you do, and that's why you wrote it down earlier. Also, you're talking about beat presence. Where can the NPCs interact with this NPC? Note the story beats where you can likely find this NPC to be able to interact with them. And and and, and in, in a lot of cases, this may be the most important or at least one of the most important aspects. The guy you dealt with on Coruscant isn't going to be there if you all of a sudden land on Naboo. Mm -hmm. uh, also, the stat block. Yeah, yeah, okay, this may not be needed, but you know what? <laughs> For Pete's sake, if you have it, put it on the damn card. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's better safe than sorry. And I mean, and really what you want to get out of this is an easily referenceable index of all your NPCs that you can pull out based on their role or, or beat that the party's in. You can even go so far as to add the NPC names to little tags on the back of your uh, beat map. And, and, you know, anyway, we've advocated the use of cards for a long, long time. I mean, heck, you, you, you get, you get uh, adversary cards now. So, I mean, psh, use them. Yeah. And there's no reason you can't use pre-covered pre adversary cards. I mean, if you even throw a sticky on them to note things like a custom name or the story beats uh, where you can find them or what their attitudes and dispositions are, psh, yeah, you, you will make life so much easier for yourself. Do it. All right, so that was uh, tool number two of the Order 66 podcast method. 
What is tool number three, pray tell? That would be the threat index. So here we go. Not only will this help you keep things organized, but if you do it right, your encounters will run smoother and faster as a result. The goal here is, much like the NPC index, to have a comprehensive mental and physical catalog of the threats of the adventure. You want to be able to quickly and easily whip these threats out without having to book dive or confusedly search through pages. Have your PCs gone off the rails and gotten a beat much earlier than intended? Not a problem. Much like NPCs, you'll want to create cards, either physically or digital, for each threat. But you really need to note only two key things. First, the beat presence. Where can the PCs interact with this threat? You want to note any beats where the threat can likely be interacted with. And of course, the next one is your classic stat block. This is the most important thing on the NPC card, so put it there. You don't want to have to flip page by page in your book and to dive in to find this info. Here's another pro tip. Pre-roll initiative for each NPC. And do it for both cool and vigilance. Just pre-roll it and note it on the NPC card. It'll help you save time. Again, what you want to get out of this is an easily referenceable index of all of your threats that you can easily pull out based on the beat the party is in. And again, you can even go so far as to add the threat names as little tags on the back of your beat map. So, three basic tools for this method. And they sound simple. We've gone through them very quickly. Now, for those watching live, I've actually put the link to our example uh, our example beat map um, NPC and threat index that was made for an adventure I wrote many years ago, which is, again, available, as Phil said, on d20radio.com. Uh, act one of the enemy of my enemy. Um, <clears throat> so I would encourage our live listeners to click on that link and, and, and pull it up. Um, now... For those of you who are listening to this podcast not live, I'll give you a moment to either go to the forums or go to Facebook and pull that up yourself. And I, I'd kind of like to go through it. Um, kind of, you know, I wanted to see how much time we were going through, guys. But if it's okay with you, I'd like to call an audible and maybe very briefly go through it. Would that be okay? Sure. Sounds fine, Ad. All right. Nothing but time. Nothing but time. Um, so if you guys pull this document up, it's a few pages, five uh, to be precise. And the first page is really just act one beat map. And what you can see here is that I've got a series of beats, individual uh, interactions and story points, starting with just another blue milk run, um, optionally moving into fly the friendly skies. Um, and from there or directly from the first just another blue milk run, moving to the encounter of a scratching of backs. Um you know, and it continues to move on. And you can see that the the, the characters can either optionally uh, attempt to go to the locating the Brotherhood on Bespin beat, or even if they have the info based on what happens in the scratching of backs, move directly to the Skifter encounter, okay? Um, and then from there, uh, after they complete that, which is a social encounter, they continue and finish out that adventure of Act 1 with the scenario of boarding passes, please. Note that for each one of those, I've got a short description of what happens in that particular beat to remind me. And also notice that I've got threats and NPCs individually labeled. It's so I know what NPC cards I should have available when they get to that beat or what threat cards I should have available when they get to that beat. Now on the next page, we have the NPC index. Um, 
Now, the NPC index for Act 1 is pretty short in this one. There's only one major NPC, um, but you can put all them all on here. And the intent here was to give you a basic idea of just how we personally like to organize this. And notice, guys, this isn't complicated. This was thrown together in a Word document quite intentionally with a bunch of screen grabs uh, done in just a, a few minutes, as fast as we could possibly do it. Um, so for the, the one major NPC that really only appears in two beats potentially in this adventure, uh, we have Merrick Quay. We have his affiliation with the Sector Rangers. We know he talks with a southern accent, has the demeanor of an old school cop. Uh, his role is that of an ally and an overseer and a source of information. And I've also got there the two beats that you're likely to encounter him in, as well as his stat block. I don't need it for him because he's just an NPC, but I happen to have it. Um, so if my players decide to go off the rails and fight this guy or maybe engage him and some social combat, I've got his stats right there. Then the last few pages of this are the threat index, where each individual threat is laid out in the threat card. Again, as fast and dirty as I could do it. I've got a rough picture of the threat, its name, its affiliation, what beats it can be found in, um, and then of course the stat block itself. Um, the very last thread on this page is actually a very huge card, uh, Stim Soldier, but that just has to do with the fact that this particular uh, threat has two stat blocks, depending on the states they're in. Read the adventure. <laughs> but that's kind of a quick walkthrough to kind of display how fast and easy this could be done. Um, I threw this together for this adventure literally in 20 minutes. That's how long it took me to throw this together. Um, it probably took me five minutes to get the beats uh, beat map done. Um, uh, a minute or two uh, on my NPC index and the rest of the time spent on my enemy threat indexes, uh, literally grabbing screenshots directly from the module. Um, and, and that's it. Now, I'm, I'm pretty intimately familiar with this module, um, but you know, after giving it a, a good read through or once over, you could easily do a beat map for this in probably 45 minutes or so. Um, not too terribly difficult. Now, a question was brought up in chat, gentlemen. Um, from Droid Dreamer, he says, how do you organize your cards for easy access to them during the game? And I think we can probably talk about that next, um, which is basically how to compile all this information. Um, well, <laughs> honestly, you know, honestly, guys, no, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, um, it's really up to you. I mean, some folks go really old school and they want pen and paper. They want printouts. It's 2018, man. Digital is the poison of choice for most GMs. I mean, not everyone is as intimately familiar with the varied software options out there, but you don't have to get complex. All of this, all of it, can be easily managed in a word processor document. Like I did. <laughs> well, it's not just that, dude. Okay. You know, there are there are tools, and, and I am... You know, the, the funny thing is that half the guys in my office now use Microsoft OneNote because I started using it in meetings and all of a sudden everybody's like, dude, what are you doing? And now everybody on my team uses One OneNote. Yes. Um, and so, I mean, there you don't have to have Microsoft Office, obviously. there's a I think there's a free or semi-free version of it. Um, Evernote is another one that's a third-party, you know, knockoff. Yep. And, and basically, it's just a note-taking tool or application and and you know these tools have a have a lot of them have desktop and mobile apps but they you know they excel at tagging things ah. right so yes create a story beat page create a card create whatever you want to tag it 
and that corresponds to that particular beat, right? Then when you create a, an NPC or a threat card, you add one or more of those tags to the to the NPC or to the threat. And you know you can search for fight at the gun at the gang hangout, and 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 instantly you get you know not only the the story beat, but then threats or NPCs that are associated with that beat. And, you know, it's not like it's it's like having Agent Ransack for you know just adventures, right? Agent Ransack's another one that lets you search through a whole bunch of different files, only returning what you actually look for. Mm-hmm. And you know, conversely, you could you know you could search equipment dealer, you know, if that's the tag you made, and get all the NPCs or even threats that are associated to equipment dealers and and uh, and and people that can sell the party some gears, you know, and and all that jazz. So, you know, there is a you know there's a ton there's a ton of stuff. That, that you can do there, but, you know, you don't have to, right, Chris? I mean, no, really? No, you really don't. I mean, honestly, just following these basic steps of creating the beat map, the NPC and the index and the threat index, they will make running pre-generated adventures smoother, faster, and easier because it's going to cement it in your brain some more. And if you want to go just old school Word doc, you're not interested in, in doing any, any good tagging solutions like Dave mentioned that we highly recommend. Um, and to Droid Dreamer's question as well, um, if you want to go old school in paper and actually start writing this stuff out, um, the easiest method I've done, especially for convention play, it's really helped me a lot, um, is you can get, um, Dave, do, do you know the, the not, not full-size sticky notes, but the little bitty teeny weeny sticky notes? Um, that are like, you know, just a few centimeters wide and long. They're designed to tag pages like in a yeah. document. Um, I highly recommend them and you can get them color coded, um, up to a dozen colors. Um, back in the day when I was running pre-gen modules for Wizards of the Coast heavily at, at, at places like Gen Con, um, I would do this. And if I had an NPC card or a threat card, um, I would actually tag it with various colors that corresponded to the story beat that you would find it in. Therefore, when I got to that particular story beat that matched that color, um, I could quickly grab the cards I needed and they were just instantly in my hands. Um, that was probably the, the best suggestion I can give you old school style for really mapping these cards easily to your pregen. So, but you know, again, guys, examples, if you want concrete examples of these three tools in action, again, we went through them, but you can find the PDFs of how this can actually look using our method for act one of my enemy, uh, the enemy of my enemy module, um, that I wrote several years ago. Um, and again, links to those PDF, that PDF is available on this episode's thread on the Order 66 podcast boards um, at d20radio.com slash forums, as well as on the episode announcement post at the Order 66 podcast Facebook page. Now, if you're looking at this and you want to actually, okay, well, show me the module itself this is based off of, that module, the module that that PDF is for, that these tools are for, the enemy of my enemy, uh, is available to the whole world for free right now. Just head over to d20radio.com, click on the Backer Zone tab up top, and you will find a link for The Enemy of My Enemy. Act 1 of that module corresponds to these examples that we're providing you. So read it, see how we applied this method to the tools. Hopefully, this will enlighten you. Dave, do you have any final thoughts on this? Because I think we've kind of beat this to death, but uh, I really hope this helps Lance out. Um, and, and others, you know, follow this method to, to kind of easily make running pre-generated modules a lot easier. I mean, any, any final thoughts from you, Dave? Not really. Okay. So Phil, what about you? Any final thoughts on this? Yeah. Um, 
I can say from experience that a lot of these are very valid um, tools and methods to do it. I've used uh, some ad adaptation of this method myself, and I've tried it without. Um, I've been running a couple games, a couple modules on my Wednesday night Skype game. Uh, sorry, Wednesday night uh, Roll20 game. And the first time I tried to do it and didn't use any of these tools and methods, the, the adventure really kind of got away from me. And I found myself constantly flipping back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and trying to find things. Because a lot of the times, especially in like some of the earlier books like Beyond the Rim, they'll reference NPC blocks that are like 20 and 30 pages away from where, you're, where you are in the game. Yeah. Because they, you know, they won't reprint them. They don't compile them all in one location and they're just scattered throughout the book. And it made things kind of difficult when the PCs sometimes went off the rails. Now, I also ran um, Chronicles of the Gatekeeper. And that I had a bit more of these examples and, and some of these tools in play. And I felt it went a lot smoother. So, um, sadly, as we discussed, you know, pre-gen modules do require some work. You can't just pick up and go. Yeah. But, you know, invest a little time and effort into them and you'll find yourself uh, able to handle whatever the PCs throw at you. Very good advice. Wonderful. And it's a wonderful show suggestion topic. I really want to thank Lance for calling it in. Guys, if you have any topics you'd like us to discuss on the show, get those topics to us. Um, give us a call on the voicemail line. We'll actually go through that contact info in a bit. Email us or head to the forums to do so. We'd love to discuss what you want us to talk about because this is your podcast. So with that... I think it's time, gentlemen, to get to some additional listener requests in the form of questions, yes? Yes. Yes. He doesn't seem to take a hint, this guy. I was beginning to wonder if you'd got my message. Messages from the Edge. Boy, am I glad to hear your voice. I think it would be wise if you took advantage of my knowledge in this instance. So welcome to Messages from the Edge. This is our regular show segment where we take the time to answer your game and rules questions about the system. How can you get us these questions? I ask the easiest way, of course, being to travel to our forums and post it up. Head to www.d20radio.com forums. Register. Head to the Order 66 podcast boards and you will find a Messages from the Edge thread. You can also email your questions to us um, at gmchris at d20radio.com, gmphil at d20radio.com, and gmdave at d20radio.com. Or post it up on the Facebook page of the Order 66 podcast or the D20 Radio Facebook group. And finally, if you're brave enough, leave us a question via voicemail on the D20 Radio hotline at 262-D20-RADIO. That's 262-320-7234. That's what Lance did. It got him an entire show topic. <laughs> it's also what our first question to caller tonight did as well. Because our first question tonight is a call-in question from someone who did not leave their name <laughs> on the message at all. Huh. So I have no idea who this unknown caller is, um, but golly, did he leave a good question. Um, so we're going to play it for you right now. Hey, Order 66 podcast. Uh, I had a little conundrum come up a couple days ago. I'm GMing a game, uh, Rebellion type, and normally I can 
you know, keep the game flow going pretty well and narrate the dice results or help narrate them pretty easily. But somebody decided when facing off against an Inquisitor with an NPC, uh, we had like a split party and they're playing like a rival level NPC, they decided they'd take a double aim, uh, an aim to shoot at the hand wielding the lightsaber of this Inquisitor. And one of my thoughts was, oh, that sounds way too easy. A single setback die, two strain. Setback die could be ignored if someone had a custom grip. So if it's that easy to, like, shoot a lightsaber out of someone's hand, why doesn't every Merc bounty hunter out there do that, like, during the Old Republic times? But, you know, I let them go ahead and roll it. They rolled success with a triumph, and I have the desire, like you guys preach, to have players do fun things, but they also ran into that logic conundrum that I just said. And so it kind of created this brick wall that I ran full tilt into, and it just kind of paused the game for way too long, like 15 minutes or so. So how would you guys handle that? Would you maybe make the difficulty equal to the lightsaber skill, or would you, like, let them go ahead and, you know, knock a lightsaber out of a... Inquisitor's hand, uh, what would you do? And, uh, yeah, how would you, uh, or what would you recommend for me? Thanks. Hmm. Mm. All right, so, uh, all right, so, all right, let me compose myself here and think, think about, because I think I've had a, a, a knee-jerk reaction to a call like this before. Um, Composition. Let me re- let me actually reset and say, all right, for those of you that, that are wondering what he's talking about, it's referring to AIM, the AIM maneuver, which is really in every single core rulebook. Um, and because I've got Force and Destiny right here, it's 207. Uh, you can find that in Force and Destiny. Um, a lot of players and GMs are familiar with AIM, but basically you can pop and maneuver to AIM and get a boost die on your next attack. But as the description tells us, you can also AIM to target a specific item carried by your target or a specific part of the target. Instead of getting a boost die, you actually suffer two setback dice, but now are aiming at a particular thing. And if you spend two maneuvers to aim twice, you will reduce those two setback dice to one setback die. And that's pretty sweet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So does this mean that you can shoot out the lightsaber from an Inquisitor's hand with just a couple of strain for an extra maneuver and one measly setback die. So, please read the text of the aim maneuver very carefully, Mr. Unknown Caller, Miss Unknown Caller. Well, Mr. To quote, This could allow the character to attempt to strike or shoot a weapon from an opponent's hand. <coughs> could. Okay, could. Could 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 allow it right that means it doesn't have to allow it when it doesn't make sense such as like i don't know when you're trying to strike a weapon like a lightsaber that's i don't know kind of designed to deflect range fire in the first place and um, is kind of immune to sundering attempts i mean just saying the the point is that, and even the text in the books makes this abundantly clear. As the GM, you don't have to allow this. It doesn't. It obviously doesn't happen very often. 
you know, or sharpshooters would become the mortal enemies of the Jedi Order. Master? Yes, Padawan. He has a rifle with a scope. Damn, we must flee. <laughs> I mean, seriously, how, how did how did how did that, you know? Okay, you know what? I remember the chase scene on Coruscant, and that girl was a pretty good shot, but they still took her down. All right, having said that, it doesn't mean you can't let your PCs attempt it, you know, and have some fun with it. You know, were I running your game in your exact scenario, I would have said, no, you can't do a double aim to shoot the lightsaber out of his hand because it's a lightsaber. But you know what? I'll let you target his hand. If you hit it, he'll get a setback die while using that hand for the rest of the encounter. Or maybe if you do enough damage, he won't be able to use that hand. Then I'd let the PC try it. Hell, we we have a canon example of this, right? Remember the fight on Jabba's skiffs? Remember this? Mm-hmm. At the start of Return of the Jedi, Luke had his hand shot while holding his lightsaber and did some damage too, right? You remember seeing the little wiry wires? Yep. All right. That NPC was doing a called shot, but Luke didn't lose his lightsaber, did he? No. He just took the damage. And really, I mean, was he even an Inquisitor at that point? Was he Was he really a knight? I don't know. I yeah, think, he said he was. I think hey. Luke was a knight by the time Jedi started. Yeah. I think so. He, yeah, but he, I mean, he, he could have still been clearly suffering from delusions of grandeur, as Han pointed out. Anyway, the that, you know, he didn't lose the saber, obviously. He took damage, probably picked up some setback dice. However, the narrative dice can and do change things. And because your PC rolled a triumph, I would totally let him spend that to disarm the lightsaber. But that's because of the triumph, not the called shot. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm. This is actually one of those situations where the dice can actually, you know, you can actually be going for not a success, but actually wanting advantage out of this roll. Because remember, if you roll three advantage or a triumph, you can disarm a target of uh, one item. Yep. So, yeah, I want to shoot to disarm him of his lightsaber. Great. Roll and hope for advantage or a triumph. Yep. Because even if you miss, you still, you know, you can still knock the weapon away. Absolutely. Actually, I think what I would do in that instance, if someone is specifically targeting a weapon, is that if they do succeed and they do score what's necessary for the triumph for, for the disarm, I would have that item go flying. So not like drop to the ground in front of them, like make them do a maneuver to just go and get it again. Oh yeah, I I always run my disarms that way. Otherwise, what's the point? Right, oh. you, you inconvenience them by taking away a maneuver for them having to retrieve it, but. If if you know for three for, for for three advantage, you knock it out of their hand. It drops down. They have to spin and move and pick it up. If someone uses a triumph to do this to, to do the disarm, I have that thing go flying. Absolutely, the loss of a maneuver is not worthy of a triumph spent. No. No way. No how. Very good question and good answer, Dave. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Well, Mr. Dave, do we have another question? Uh, you know what? We do. As, as a matter of fact, this one comes from Keegan. And uh, he writes, Hey there. Hello, Keegan. I am playing a Salonian in my game. I want to build a glaive at some point. What the hell is that? I don't even know what that is. It's a pole arm. Oh, uh, okay. But have it be more techie based on my character's interests. I'd like to make it collapsible 
but there's no custom construction feature for that. I was considering arguing that it'd be similar to the shortened muzzle mod, but I was also thinking it'd be cool to be able to use it as a brawl weapon when collapsed, making it about the size of a cestus or large blades knuckles. And then a glaive when extended. How do I make a custom mod without making it OP, though? Any suggestions would be appreciated. I'm not listening, though. Keegan. Hmm. It's an interesting question, Keegan. Though it's injected with a lot of cheese. Limburger. Zing! All right. So let's let's start with uh, let's start with what we've got. Uh, let's talk about the Salonian glaive. Page nine, D eight of uh, Fort Sons of Fortune. It's one of the nastier melee weapons in the game. Crafted individually by Salonian females, it has a blade of special obsidian that is mere nanometers thick. It has plus three damage, defense one, and pierce three. And you want to make it more cool? All right, well, keep in mind that part of the beefy plus three damage is because of its size. It's encumbrance five, for Pete's sake. That's bigger than a Vibroax. So as a GM, I would not let you miniaturize it and retain that damage. Now, miniaturization is different from collapsible, but we'll get to that. So there's no attachment that lets you remotely do what you're wanting to do, but you know that. You've mentioned the shortened barrel attachment, page 203, Age of Rebellion, core rulebook, which only has the effect of reducing the difficulty checks to conceal it, and it only applies to small ranged light weapons, and comes with a nasty modifier, reducing the weapon's range by one. The incumbents of the weapon doesn't change at all. If you wanted to homebrew something balanced to miniaturize your weapon, wow, um, it would need some serious trade-offs. First of all, having one weapon that could be used in either melee or brawl is overpowered, so in my opinion, no. For a thousand credits, I'd allow you to reduce the weapon size at a one-for-one encumbrance to damage ratio. Reduce it by two encumbrance for minus two damage, for example. And you could reduce extended as a, as a maneuver, or I'm sorry, reduce or extended as a maneuver. But even at encumbrance three, it's, it's not a cestus, it's the size of a sword at that point. The Salonian glaive is way too powerful to get to the encumbrance two size you're thinking of here. Now, another option would be to homebrew something that actually makes, you know, and actually make it collapsible. Basically, this would be what you could take apart into a glaive head and several handle sections, in essence, ending up with five encumbrance one pieces that could be easily stowed in a small case or a backpack. I'd let you fly that for measly 200 credits, and that would take a full round action to assemble or, or disassemble. But more than that, and you're swimming in OP cheese, bro. Yeah. No, I, I got to agree with that assessment, man. And it sounds like what he wants is like, like a, you know, a Cestus or a, <clears throat> like a, a shredder style bladed glove that can like nano expand into a giant glaive. But I mean, dude, it's, it's encumbrance five, five. Yeah. That's, 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 that's a lot of handle. That's bigger than a blaster rifle. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's like, and we don't we don't have any cannon. That, like, I mean, there, there's nothing like that in Star Wars I've ever seen. The actually no, um, Phasma's polearm at the in the, at towards the end of the Last Jedi that wasn't collapsing, was it? No, that was that was like that was just. Th- that was basically what what you might refer to as collapsible. I mean, like I don't think Phasma could have used it 
as anything while it was collapsed. You know what I'm saying? Right. Other than like, you know, maybe like, you know, just because it's collapsed and it has mass, maybe like damage plus one or something. It may be. But even then collapsed, I saw that thing collapse in her hand. It was encumbrance two at least. Okay. It was the size of like a short sword. All right. Yeah. And so yeah. it expanded. It at most it gained an extra two encumbrance expanded, which would probably put it into like a uh, uh, force pike category. Yeah. yeah. But not encumbrance five. I mean, I'm sure you could engineer something to do it, but I wouldn't allow it to deal any significant damage or get any of its uh, any of its qualities while collapsed. No, you know, and even collapsed, it's probably like the, you know, still the size of like a bread box or a toaster or something. You know? Yeah, I. Yeah. But, nice try. Very cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so our last question tonight comes in via email from Brian Best. Who writes, greetings, benevolent GMs. I have a question on how best to run social encounters when the PCs are the target of social checks by NPCs. In my experience, when a PC realizes that an NPC is attempting to coerce, charm, or deceive them, the PC reacts in a way that the character would not because they have meta-knowledge that their character has been targeted. The problem is exasperated when the PC fails a check, like my group in, of combat min-maxers. <laughs> In the past, I have either, one, narratively played these situations out and done my best to acquire the PCs to make their own checks and try to verify the accuracy or motivation of the NPC, or two, have the PCs make the appropriate responding social check, which usually requires limiting the PC's actions, particularly if the PC has been coerced, charmed, or deceived. Not surprisingly, when the PC realizes they have been coerced, charmed, or deceived, the usual reaction is to is immediate hostility which is completely contrary to how their characters should react, particularly if the NPC is successful. Therefore, unless I limit how the PCs can interact and essentially take control of their characters for the remainder of the encounter, the PCs are impervious or immune to social checks from NPCs. I've had more success with the first option because it reduces or eliminates the player's meta-knowledge, but for those PCs who do not have social characters, it deprives, or sorry, who do have social characters, it deprives them of many beneficial social talents that assist with defending against social attacks by NPCs. Thank you, and I neither, and neither I nor the rest of my group ever listen. Ah, that's a really good question, Brian. Um, mm. Now, it's not easy when your group isn't willing to get into the narrative and roleplay their best. Mm. It's just not. The The optimal scenario, um, and one that we encourage you to drive towards, is that the players keep their personal knowledge separate from their character knowledge. Um, but if you have a group that just doesn't get it, you can't do anything else about it, then we do have a, two, a few tips for such a play group. Three options, specifically. Option one is really nag them. Uh, <laughs> um, use reminders to get them into the proper role-playing mindset. Now, now, hang on. Your character doesn't know that. Is that how your character would respond? They think this guy's on the level. Basically, you're encouraging the player to just do some damn role-playing. Um, maybe it will sink in, eventually. <laughs> So I think you should do that regardless. But if it doesn't work, there are two other options that I can recommend. Uh, little GM tips and tricks maybe I've perhaps used in my prior GMing experience with players who were having similar issues and attitudes. Um, the first one, option two. You need to start making rolls for everything, bro. 
every social interaction they have roll behind the GM screen. And be sure to have your PC's social stats for opposed difficulties on hand so you don't have to ask them for them to tip off your players. But roll. Roll for every single interaction they have. 90% of the time, it's meaningless. They're not in any kind of social combat, but the players don't know that. If your players know that a roll means they're being targeted by a social check, make every interaction a roll. They'll pretty soon figure out they won't be able to predict if this is a real check on the NPC's part or not. At the very least, if you bombard them with that, they're going to get tired of being suspicious of everyone. Um, the preferred option, though, option three, the one I most highly recommend, don't make rolls. Have them make rolls. And have them make them for any interaction they have. What do I mean by this? Here's an example. When you've got an NPC trying to deceive a character, say his deception versus the PC's discipline, don't roll the NPC's deception. Instead, ask the PC to make a discipline check with a difficulty of XYZ, which unknown to them is the NPC's deception pool. Don't offer explanation. Just have them make the check. Keep them guessing. And much like option two, have them do this all the time. Sometimes it matters, most of the time it does not. Now the inherent problem with that option three is, and this is the very thing you ended your question with, if you have social characters in the party who have social talents that are designed to defend against social attacks, well how do those play in when you're inverting the roles like this? The answer, and I've done this before quite successfully, is to invert those talents. For example, you have a talent that uh, enforces two threat on an NPC's social check when he targets you. Well, invert the talent. Have your PC make the discipline check, again, opposed by the NPC's uh, social check, and those talents would add to advantage to your check instead of adding to threat. Um, another option would be removing to threat from your check. Um, if you have a, a talent that adds a setback die to an NPC's social check, it adds a boost die to your defensive check. Just invert those talents, and the PCs will still get great use out of them. Now, the only downside to that fact is, is that, as has been said even by the developers, the dice are weighted slightly in favor of the positive dice. Yes, they are. They dice for dice, like... they're weighted to come up more often as success with threat. Yes. So. And so, and, and to that point, Phil, you, you keep, you know, I don't have a problem with that because I always like erring on the side of my players anyway. Yeah, but, exactly. But if, if it is a concern for you, just take that into account if you're going to invert these checks like this and maybe have a mildly harder difficulty as a result. Or toss a setback die in there. Or, so. or toss a setback, yeah. That's easy, easy, easy peasy way to do it. Easy right. peasy way. Marvelous. Excellent questions, guys. Again, we want your questions. Get them to us. Uh, you can, of course, uh, leave questions uh, like our first caller did. Uh, uh, who, who, wonderful caller with a wonderful question. We would love to know your name uh, at 262D20Radio. Um, the last two questions we had were emailed to us, and you can email us, GM Chris, GM Dave, or GM Phil at d20radio.com. Or, of course, you can post up your question on the forums or our Facebook page. And now it is time, gentlemans, to come to the end of this fine episode. Listeners, thank you for listening. Thank you for giving us your time. We hope this episode's been informative. We want you to continue listening. We want you to become a member of our community. If you're not already, head to the forums at d20radio.com forums. Register, post your mind. Give us a call. 
262-320-7234. Leave us a liner. Tell us why you never listen to the Order 66 podcast or just a question that you want us to answer. We want to hear it. And with that, this is GM Chris wishing you peace, love, and good gaming. And keep those dice rolling. May the dice be with you. You've been listening to the Order 66 podcast brought to you by Ethan Kinsey, GM Scott, Jeremy Bensley, Bert Ingley, Joshua Taylor, and William File. This podcast and related websites are not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games, 20th Century Fox, Walt Disney Corporation, or Lucasfilm Limited, and its content is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. All original content is the intellectual property of the Order 66 podcast and Gamer Nation, LFC. Mm-hmm.